couple of really special uh, ladies are here tonight. Uh, one, uh, and, and both of them uh, in particular, are uh, the wives of elders. Uh, one is uh, one that uh, I've, I've known for a number of years, uh, Linnell Hartman. Her husband, Dan, is an elder in the church in Fredericksburg, and she's Jeanette Jones' uh, sister. And uh, she has uh, been very close to my mother over the years, and she's been with us today. And I'm really, I'm really thankful for the Hartmans and their, their family and all the ways that they, they try to take care of, of people in, in Fredericksburg. And, and I'm really glad that she's here. And I, I know many of you have already met her. She's been to uh, some, some uh, activities with uh, our church over the years. And, uh, but I'm glad that she's here tonight. And then uh, in, in 1995... Uh, Ellen and I and our family moved back to the United States, and we landed in Lubbock for a short period of time. Uh, we returned to the States uh, because there were some health issues with Ellen that we needed to attend to. Uh, uh, we landed in, in Lubbock, and for a period of time, uh, I didn't really know what my future was going to, uh, to look like in terms of ministry, even if there would be a ministry. Uh, you know, you're on the mission field for a number of years, and you're kind of out of the loop, and you know, nobody's heard of you, and you just kind of wonder if there's a, there's a place. And there was a place uh, up in Lawrence, Kansas. And uh, one of the, the shepherds up there for, for a number of years uh, during my time up there that I was uh, extremely close to and, uh, and did a lot of, of ministry with over the years was a fellow by the name of Clarence Denton. Uh, uh, became an elder uh, for the second time after I arrived there and, and was one of the guys that helped to, to, to bring my family to, to Lawrence. And uh, a few years ago, uh, Clarence passed away. And uh, we have... That's Clarence, I guess, talking to us. He never wanted to be mentioned by name any time in a sermon. <laughs> but uh, but Clarence was, was a really close friend and... and uh, uh, his his family uh, were some folks that we got really close to as well. But his wife, Helen, who is just one of the, the most gracious, uh, spiritually minded women I've, I've ever known in my life, uh, is here with us. Her granddaughter, uh, Rachel, and her husband, Chris, have been visiting Mac over the last couple of, of months and, and coming to our worship assemblies. And uh, they're here because uh, Chris is in the military and he's over at uh, Fort Sam. And uh, Rachel's mom who uh, has spent a, a great portion of her life up in Canada and is, is uh, they're now back in Kansas and uh, she teaches at the University of Kansas, is with her as well, uh, Dr. Martha Elford. And, uh, and I hope you'll take some time to, to meet uh, this, these, these ladies and spend some time with them tonight. They, they're really, really great ladies. I really appreciate them. And uh, it's, I always think that, um, I always felt that we did women a disservice in the church. I always felt that uh, one of the, the, the strongest and keenest voices, spiritually speaking, to me in my life have been voices uh, of women who have said things to me and have talked to me and have uh, counseled me at times that have just really been a blessing to my life. And we don't really talk about the women as much as we should. But these, these wives of elders are tremendous people. And, and we are blessed by the ones that we have in this church, and we're blessed by the ones that we've known throughout our life. Amen? Let's pray. God, you're so gracious to us, 
and, and the blessings that, that come into our life from so many avenues, but all find their source in You, are just innumerable and immeasurable. And our gratitude doesn't even begin to touch the hem of the garment for how You, you lift us up in this life and, and bring joy into and peace, Father, joy and a peace into our life in, in such a way that, that we're, we're able to overcome. And regardless of what happens to us in, in this life, Father, regardless of what's taken away from us, because You are our treasure, and because You hold us in Your hand, and no one can snatch You out of our hand, You have become for us, Father, the foundation of all of life. And as we study uh, Your Word tonight, Father, we're asking, as always, in the name of Jesus, that You will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And that, that You will bless us in, in pressing our mind into these words, Father, in such a way that they go all the way down into the, the deepest parts of our souls and change us. Thank You for our brother Paul and for his perseverance, his courage, his, his, his faith, and His abiding love for people. We pray to emulate it in whatever circumstance we find in this life. And to this end, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Quick reminder, a statement that we use at the beginning of these messages about uh, the nature of the Bible is this. The nature of the Bible is that it's not a collection of random stories. It's not just a bunch of myths or a bunch of proverbial statements. It's not just a bunch of ancient stories that have been kind of stitched together. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but it's one story. It's about God and how God created the heavens and the earth. And it's about man who is God's creature, created by God. What went wrong and how God is putting it all back together again. And I, I want to begin with, uh, with a quote by John Ortberg. This putting it back together again is not always easy. It's sometimes very difficult, it very, very brutal work. And uh, John Ortberg, in a, in a leadership magazine from about uh, three years ago, there's a quote from an article that I've always liked. It called, it's called, Don't Waste a Crisis. And in it, he writes, Imagine you're handed a script of your newborn child's entire life. Better yet, you're given an eraser and five minutes to edit out whatever you want. You read that she will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for her. In high school, she will make a great circle of friends. Then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, she will get into her preferred college, but while there, she will lose a leg in a car accident. Following that, she will go through a difficult depression. A few years later, she'll get a great job, then lose that job in an economic downturn. She'll get married, but then go through the grief of separation. And with this script of your child's life and five minutes to edit it, what would you erase? Psychologist Jonathan Haidt, he continues, poses this question in his hypothetical exercise. Wouldn't you want to take out all of the stuff that would cause them pain? If you could erase every failure, disappointment, and period of suffering... Would that be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow into the best version of themselves? Is it possible 
that we actually need adversity and setbacks, maybe even crisis and trauma, to reach the fullest potential of development and growth. And then from another fellow by the name of Oswald Chambers, some of you have read his stuff on leadership, he writes this as a different quote. He says, if you are going to be used, if you are going to be used by God, He will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all. They are meant to make you useful in His hands. End of quote. Well, tonight is 2 Corinthians. Uh, Perhaps it's really the fourth letter that Paul has written to the Corinthians. And as we saw this morning, Paul has a very deep relationship with the church in Corinth. And as you read, primarily 2 Corinthians, even though you see it in 1 Corinthians as well, the emotion of his relationship, sometimes he is is very giddy in his excitement about them. Sometimes he, he just feels the burden of a father with them and he's very upset. But the emotion spills out at times. He truly, truly, truly cares for them. It is an intensely personal letter. When, when you read it, it really does feel like you're reading somebody else's mail. It's an intensely personal letter about many things, but you can't help but be struck by the difficulties that Paul endured and suffered in his ministry with that church in Corinth. Now, I've pondered this thought the last couple of days in thinking about 2 Corinthians, and the thought is this, and I've worded it kind of a strange way. I'll explain it in a minute, but faith is hardly ever exercised in our comfort zones. Faith is hardly ever exercised in our comfort zones. I say hardly ever because in a couple of days, I don't know if I've had enough time to think of the exceptions. They may exist, but I haven't thought of any just yet. It seems to me that while we're operating inside of our comfort zone, we're operating between the power that our two hands are able to generate and the intelligence and the thought processes that happens between our ears. That faith, stepping out and trusting God, happens outside of those comfort zones. And these experiences are meant to make us useful in the hands of God. What Paul is teaching us is that faith and ease of life is not always synonymous. What Paul is teaching us is that these kinds of things that we go through are not sometimes just meant for us to to grow and to become the best version of ourselves, but sometimes they are shaping us to be useful in the hands of God. And I think that this is one of the great themes, at least in a very personal reading of of 2 Corinthians. A couple of points I want to make tonight is this. The first, the blessings of God are there even in times of trouble. The blessings of God are there even in times of trouble. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. You know, it was common to think in Paul's day, as it is in ours, that when things are going well, when things are are really, really good, when there's prosperity and ease and comfort and joy, and there is a lack of friction in life, then God must be happy with us. And conversely, when things are going poorly, and things are not turning out the way that we thought they would, and and we don't really want to, to see what's around the corner because we think it's going to be scary, then God must be angry with us. When things are great, then God is with us. When things are not so great, then... then uh, When things are good, God is happy with us. And when things are going poorly, God is angry with us. Paul says, not so. 
The suffering of Christ can flow into the life of His disciples. The sufferings of Christ can flow even into our own life as we try to live out the ramifications of what God's grace has done to each of us through the Gospel. But, Paul says, God blesses us even in times of trouble and adversity with comfort, with His presence, with hope. And even as he's going to talk about it later in the letter, even with some personal transformation, and these things are the kinds of things that as the sufferings of Christ flow into our life, so do the comforts of Christ flow into the lives of our lives into the lives of others. And now, as you know, Paul has had some hardships. You read the book of Acts. Life is not easy for Paul. At times it's very, very difficult. In this particular letter, he says, you know, I have received all this comfort from God and it's a good thing because of the hardships that I have suffered in the province of Asia. He says it was even beyond his ability to endure them. I mean, how difficult does it have to be for a guy who's not really a guy but really an hombre? Paul is a tough guy. He is an hombre. And how tough... How difficult, how gritty does it have to be that, that Paul says, I mean, it was beyond my ability to even endure it. He despaired, even of life, felt in his own body the sentence of death. He's not talking about happy days. But in verse 9 he says, but you know what? This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Who raises the dead who raises the dead. That power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work in in Paul's life. He continues, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril. And get this, and He will deliver us again. And He will deliver us again. And, you know, who knows what it is that God is working out, but remember that faith is, is not always exercised in our comfort zones. What Paul is saying is that, you know, there, there, there have been difficulty after difficulty after difficulty, and I even despaired of death. I thought at one point that, that not only was I despaired unto death, but I, was even, I even had that, that life, uh, that, uh, that death sentence on my heart. But God delivered. He said, you know, I wanted to come and see you. But to see you was prevented. The timing wasn't right. And it wasn't because Paul didn't love the church in Corinth. But maybe what it was that God was working out by keeping him from going to Corinth, maybe it allowed the person that had maybe insulted Paul or insulted Timothy to repent of his behavior. In fact, he writes that the discipline of the church had not only brought this fellow to repentance, but it fortunately had taken him to the tipping point with his faith. And Paul says... In verse 7 of chapter 2, you ought to forgive and to comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. But more than anything else, he drives the point that the blessings of God are there even in times of of trouble. And then number two, that ministry is often the source of that trouble. Paul talks about heading off to Troas in the middle of chapter 2 and describes his life as being led by God like, like it's in a procession, that he's being paraded everywhere. Paul goes and he goes and he goes and he's headed everywhere and he's visiting everywhere and he describes it as if God is leading him in a process. But everywhere he goes in that procession, he makes the knowledge of Christ known to everybody. Now you would think, that's really kind of a wonderful thing. I mean, the guy is doing the work of a missionary. Wherever he goes, he's talking to people about Christ. And we have 
at times really romanticize that idea and thinking that he's out there fighting the good fight and people are just planting churches and it's all going great at first glance. You would think that it would be a very positive experience. And a lot of the time it was. But a lot of the time it wasn't. And the reason is the nature of the message. In verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? As he says in chapter 3 and verse 4, it's only those whose competence comes from God. How is it that Paul's able to deal with all of that adversity? Sometimes he goes in the aroma of life as he's spreading the knowledge of, of, of Christ and the gospel and the death and the burial and the resurrection. People are so excited about it. They just rejoice. They turn. They accept it. They recognize it for what it is. It's a treasure. But then there are times when people look at it and it is death. The aroma, the odor of death to them. And it leads to rejection, and it leads to resistance, and it leads to Paul being pushed back on. I mean, who is equal to this kind of a task to be par paraded in, in a process throughout the known world? And that's your experience everywhere you go. Could you imagine Paul going to, to Rome just once, just on vacation? Could you imagine him going to Ephesus? Could you imagine him going to anywhere in the known world, any of those great cosmopolitan, globalized cities, and just saying, you know what? I'm, not going to, I'm going to step out of that process. And there were times of rest for him. There were times of rest. But God had him in a stream that everywhere he went, it was the message. It was the message. It was the message. And he says, you know, who is equal to such a task? Only God makes us competent. But the underlying question under the question is, well, yeah, how do you do it, Paul? But, and after you hear all of the stuff, the underlying question below all the other questions is, but is it worth it? But is it worth it? And here I think Paul sort of goes into an aside beginning in chapter 3, about the middle of chapter 3, and going to, to chapter 4, verse 18, the end of chapter 4. And what he does in that aside is just to remind everybody that, that the Gospel, this ministry that He has been given, is glorious. And later in the book, he's going to talk about the fact that, you know, he was, he was a Hebrew and, 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 and uh, you, you know, zealous in all that, that he did as a Hebrew. And he says, you know, I know what the law is all about. The Gospel is glorious. And if the law, which brings death, was glorious enough that when Moses was in the presence of God receiving that law, he came down and delivered that law unto the people. The people could not look upon his face because of the transformation of, of, of that, that fading glory, that transformation of his face. They could not look at him. Then how much more the Gospel and the Spirit of God which bring life to people glorious beyond comprehension. What Paul says there is, is so incredibly important. Because every once in a while, we're in a situation where we have to decide whether or not we are going to open up about our faith or not. And, and the writing factor a lot of times is 
once we drill down deep enough into our motivations is whether or not we really see the gospel as glorious as it really is. That the, that the glory of the gospel and, and of the Spirit which gives life is the greatest of our, of our treasures. And it's not only a, a treasure, but it transforms us into the likeness of Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, uh, at the end of chapter 3, that this, this glory and this, of the Gospel and the Spirit of, of God that is in us is transforming us day by day and degree by degree into the likeness of Jesus. And because it's so glorious, and because it's so transforming of people's lives, and because it is the most powerful message that men have ever known, chapter 4, verse 1, we do not lose heart. Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. The gospel will not be stopped. Where the gospel is spoken, lives will be changed, and it will bring glory to God. And then perhaps in the highlight of the letter, he says, you know, we don't lose heart. Even though it's tough, even though it's difficult, even though there's resistance. We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. The troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And then kind of at the end, sort of an ending theme here. He says the ministry is difficult because the gospel is about reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, he says he is a new creation. He is new. And he says in chapter 5, verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That is not a message, believe it or not, that will be readily embraced or appreciated. There will be pushback. And there will be signs of the Gospel's effect that the grace that reconciles is the grace that makes God's people generous. You know, one of the ways that this reconciliation changes people, and one of the signs of it, is that they become generous in chapters 8 and chapter 9. Those famous chapters about generosity and, 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 and reaping what you sow and all of these kinds of things. In chapters 8 and 9, you have his instructions about the special collection that is going to be collected and taken back to Jerusalem. Another sign of the greatness of the gospel is the hardships people will endure to preach it. And towards the end of this letter, Paul knows that the success of the gospel is the power of God. He knows it's not in him. He's just the clay jar. He's just, he has the treasure in the clay jar. Paul knows that the success of the gospel, his competence is in the power of God. And it's not in the power of persuasion or the speech of those false super apostles, but it's in God. And here Paul gets intensely personal and basically he's saying that he could only make it if God were enriching and empowering <coughs> excuse me if his if if God were enriching and empowering his life. And so in chapter eleven he says, You know, it's not about working hard. I I work hard. But I've also been in prison. 
been flogged, exposed to death. Not once, but five times I have received the forty lashes less one. Three times beaten with rods. It's been stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A day and night in the open sea. Always on the move. Dangerous rivers, dangerous bandits. Dangerous fellow countrymen, dangerous Gentiles, dangerous cities, dangerous false brothers. And then he says, you know, there, there have been nights when I've been cold. And there have been times when it seems like I was going around without much to wear, not much to my name. And then there have been times when to preach the Gospel meant that Paul would go hungry. But you know what God did? God gave Paul a vision of heaven. Took him to to the third heaven. Took him into paradise. And He showed him things that, that men are not allowed to talk about. And I can't help but think that Paul could talk about these, these hardships and he could talk about how rough it was to be a missionary in a place like Corinth or any place in the Roman Empire. And it was okay by him. If God told him he wanted him to live in a cardboard box, you know what? That'd be okay with Paul. Because God had allowed him to see the true glory. You know, when God was talking to Ananias there in the middle of the book of Acts. Ananias a little upset that God has told Paul, Saul at that point, where Ananias lives. And Paul says, uh, God says, you know, he is going to be a servant and he's going to suffer greatly for the gospel. And suffer he did. But it was okay. Because he had seen what God has in store for the faithful. And it made five times those lashings, all those beatings with the rods, to be dragged out of a city and people throw rocks at you trying to kill you. To be in the open sea, to always be on the move. Remember there was one time when somebody said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he said, you know, foxes have a hole and birds have nests in the air, but the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. Paul's always on the move, flogged, knows what Roman prisons look like. He knows what it's like to be cold and to be hungry and to be naked. But it's okay. And so great was that vision. He was not allowed to talk about it. And so great was that vision that Paul, even though he prayed three times to God to take away this thorn in the flesh, God said, no, you need to keep it. And he said to Paul, in your weakness, then you can be strong. Because I'm making you strong. And so at the end of the book, chapter 12, Verse 9, he says, he's right. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses 
so that Christ's power, Christ's power, may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, from time to time, I think you're, you're able to get an insight into what it was really like for Paul. I think that's what you get in 2 Corinthians. You get insight into the fact that here, here was a guy that, that he, you know, he would tell Tim, Timothy, I'm the, the chief of sinners. Maybe it was a little bit of hyperbole, but I think he felt it. Because he knew that he had stood and opposed the kingdom of God. And yet somehow God had been able to turn that around on the road to Damascus and say, Paul, you've got to stop kicking against the direction I've been pushing you. You've got to accept by faith and to trust and to obey and believe. And from that point on, his life was different. And all of those hardships and all of those things that he went through to make sure that churches were planted, and not just you know planted, but even after he left, there were times when he'd write those letters back and he would go back to visit. And he was always concerned. The churches were always a burden on him. Why? Because he wanted them to experience, like he had experienced, what the grace of God, what the Gospel can do to people. When Paul met the resurrected Jesus, it was a glorious moment, but it was a humbling moment. And it was a moment where the reality of the Gospel was not just some kind of philosophy or some kind of an equation to get rich in the world, but it was life-changing. And all of a sudden, the universe made sense to him. Not that he understood it all. Or everything that there was to know. But what God was doing in Christ became the thing that He embraced until the day that He took His last breath. And if God had asked Him to live in a cardboard box, He would have. Because of the glorious nature of the Gospel. And regardless of what it was that was thrown at him, that tried to stop him, that tried to thwart him, that tried to push him back, that tried to discourage him, that tried to crush him, that tried to even kill him, couldn't. Because the power of God rested on him to go into all of these cities and to share, even with trembling and and great fear, to go into these cities and to share this news and to change people's lives. Now, it makes you think a little bit about your understanding of the Gospel. Do you understand the Gospel? And as it continually impacted your life in such a way that if God asked you to live in a cardboard box, that'd be okay. And secondly, is your faith really being exercised? Or have you grown accustomed to living in comfort zones? and never being stretched, and never having your faith exercised, and never, never, ever having the great blessing of pleasure of seeing the Gospel impact somebody else's life, regardless of what it means for you. Maybe that can happen for you tonight. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ changes everything. The death, burial, and resurrection changes human beings who have introduced into God's good creation sin and rebellion and pride 
and destruction and death is reversed in the Gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection. And your life is different because of that. God's Spirit comes inside of you. The forgiveness that you experience, a clean conscience. That Spirit that sanctifies you. God's power at work in your life, not just changing you, but at times opening doors for you to walk through so that you can be used, these experiences, so that you can be used and shaped to become useful in His hands and in His purposes. To understand that there is nowhere that you go in this life that He does not see you and is not with you and is not having His comfort and His guide and everything with you in that moment. All of that can change tonight if you've never taken that step. Never taken that step. Like Paul did on that road to Damascus where it was glorious to see what God has in store. But at the same time, humbling. Humbling. Because of the great cost. Because of the the greatness of the cost to save people like us. That describes you. We're going to invite a couple of our shepherds to be down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them about the things that are on your heart. The things that are troubling you, the things that need to change, the things that, 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 that are, are contra the, the kingdom of God in your life. We want you to come down and talk to these men and to pray with them and even, if need be, to confess your sin and to repent. That is to change your life and to have your sins washed away in baptism. If that describes you, then come down to the front talk to these men as we stand and praise God together.